This is a conversation with uh, Roshi Robert Althouse. Hi, Robert. Hi. Hi. Something about uh, your unconventional approach to teaching Zen. Yeah, so um, I, about a year ago, uh, right around the time the economy was tanking, I began to feel that I had been doing traditional Zen practice for many, many years, and it was always a small number of people, and our our Sangha community didn't feel as vital as I felt it could be, and I, uh, I so I started rethinking everything about Zen, and I uh, made some very pretty radical changes and took out much of the uh, formality of Zen practice and quite a bit of the ritual and attempted to translate Zen. I have been ever since trying to translate the Zen tradition into a Western context. So uh, what I talk a lot about is living a Zen-inspired life of openness, empathy, and clarity. I don't use any big Buddhist words, uh, and I and I genuinely feel that Zen is a proactive spiritual path that is universal, uh, is accessible to anyone regardless of their religion or culture or upbringing. Yeah, so so that sense of, of uh, living a Zen life. Of, yeah, um, yeah, a Zen-inspired life, I would say. Yeah. That anyone can live a Zen-inspired life, uh, again, regardless of religion or culture. And, um, and I... I ground that uh, these teachings in mindfulness uh, meditation or mindfulness awareness, and I again draw mostly on neuroscience and psychology, Western philosophy, because I'm a Westerner, and that's what's most familiar to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So neuroscience, and so uh, you know, just let's talk a little bit about that in terms of. You know, mindfulness, fear, or heritage. Well, there, you know, neuroscience has come a long way in ten years. It's a, it's really quite extraordinary what they, what they're doing now in neuroscience, and there are many people writing about it, and quite a few making connections between uh, uh, findings in neuroscience and mindfulness awareness, and uh, so I. It just seems like a natural uh, uh, connection to make uh, between meditation and, and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking earlier before you, we started this recording. I, I was mentioning how much I like your new website and the kind of uh, sense of proactive and positive outlook you have. There are people like Rick Hansen that comes to mind that has a lot of emphasis along those lines as well, and who's a neuroscientist. I think he wrote Buddha's Brain or something like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the the one thing that came up for me when I was thinking about, about this uh, is that we, the way we're constructed as human beings is we are constructed to, to, from an evolutionary point of view to have a negative bias. And that's, uh, the, we have the amygdala, uh, I always mispronounce that, but amygdala, amygdala, kind of a tongue twister. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> we have that part, that little small little piece in the limbic 
area of the brain that is really specialized for uh, noting danger and threat, and that's what it, its main job is to alert us to threats in the environment, and that actually has, again, from an evolutionary point of view, that serves has served us very well because we cannot actually afford to make mistakes when there's a serious danger in the environment or we wouldn't survive and, and uh, propagate the species. So that's actually a very important property of our brains, but at the same time, I think it's important to appreciate that it gives us a negative bias when we look at the world. We're more, more likely to give weight to our negative judgments, our fears, our anxieties than we are to a positive uh, interpretation of events. So I want to maybe just slow down on this and stay there because uh, huh? as you as you say it, it flows in the conversation in a way that feels very natural. But in a way, um, uh, you know, just stopping to make sense of how powerful what you said is, yeah. that, uh, you know, we think of negative as bad, and so in a way, strange of how we could have so much, uh, you know, so much power for what is negative. It seems weird. But what yeah. you're saying is negative is actually, uh, that negative thinking is actually something that's a very powerful force that helped us survive and be where we are today. As a species, it's a, it's a built into us uh, biologically for survival. So that that negative bias is uh, you're absolutely right. I think it's very important that, that it's there. So the the negative thinking, the critical, that self negative negative stuff, all of this comes from that basic urge to uh, to notice something that is dangerous and pay a lot of attention to it to not get burned by it. Yeah, so I, I would say there's a one way to maybe talk about this is that we have a biological basis to our experience, which is, uh, is it's always there, and uh, the the difference between humans and other animals who also have that same biological uh, alert mechanism in their brains is that we also have some mind or consciousness allows us to reflect on that and I think that's also extremely powerful that we are able to take our uh, take this experience that we have that uh, is happening at a biological level which is helping us survive and then reflect on it and be able to uh, put it in a more accurate context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have that that ability to override that basic mechanism of fear. I actually think we do. Yes. Uh huh. We can uh, modulate the fear, and we can um, we can. Uh, I think everything has to do with context, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it. I mean, if there's a saber-toothed tiger next to me, that's you know. That's one context, but if it's um, if I'm just uh, ruminating about the economy and feeling anxious this morning because I heard a story on NPR, that's another context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very different context. 
So, so we're... Uh, another way of saying that, I think, is just to, there's a lot of ways we could uh, approach this, but another way of saying it is, I think we, um, we tend to give a lot of weight to the things that we have very little control over in terms of our thought process, where we, where our thoughts go. Mm-hmm. So I can, I could spend the whole morning obsessing about the, the, our bad economy in America and, and have a miserable morning, but I don't have much control over that. So in terms of what I would call living a Zen, a Zen inspired life or being proactive is I think what makes a Zen inspired life a more effective lifestyle is that we're spending more of our time and our energy on things that we do have control over. Mm-hmm. Our circle of influence, as Stephen Covey would, would put it, you know, we actually have more leverage by paying attention to the spheres of influence around us, our friends, our community, people that we can have an, have an effect uh, over. Yeah, yeah. So that, that possibility of actually uh, switching, we get the information, the danger signal, uh, but we then have the ability to interpret it. Yes, so I think uh, understanding our nature, our basic nature, is very important, and then understanding the power of our ability to be mindful in the face of those reactive uh, tendencies that are coming up in us. Mm-hmm. So, so you set up the notion of uh, mindfulness and of proactive in a very different tone from, say, the moralistic tone that sometimes can be used about it, that, you know, one is good. or But essentially you say that the reactive tendency is very useful for survival. However, yeah. uh, there is also a useful mechanism to override it in order to make a choice and, uh, in a way, analyze intelligence before acting on it. Yes, I think so. Uh-huh. Yes, if we're just reactive, things don't go very well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, and I think this brings us just to uh, focusing, actually. I've, uh, I use focusing in my teaching uh, quite a bit. I find that uh, there are uh, a lot of people that come to me do not seem to... They discount the body in a way that focusing helps people not do. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're just so disembodied in this culture and fragmented in so many ways that when people, uh, I think using mindfulness and focusing together is a very useful uh, partnership in which you can begin to trust the wisdom of the body and find that there's something there a very deep, intuitive kind of knowing that uh, is people just aren't used to. Uh, they don't know how to do it. They don't. They don't trust it. They don't listen to the to their bodies in that way. So I think when uh, as a, I guess the way to put this in terms of being reactive is that when. When we're in a react, when the when we get triggered and we're in a reactive place that's fearful or anxious, 
we tend to, uh, what I think they call in psychology, is we're flooded for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interestingly, men are tend to be flooded uh, for a longer period of time than women. And I think that, that might be, in terms of evolution, again, is that men had to fight or uh, uh, kind of gear up for something, whereas women had to kind of hold it together and protect the family or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, there is this, uh, we are triggered, and, and when we're triggered, we're flooded, and we're in a, then we're in a place that is sort of hyper-vigilant, which is... Uh, Useful again from a, you know evolutionary point of view. We we need to we're we're in that place of being hyper vigilant to deal with danger. On the other hand, if we're if we're being triggered all the time during the day by thoughts of the economy or whatever it might be, then we're in a place that is uh, creating a lot of stress. And I think what mindfulness and focusing helps one learn to do is you notice that instead of spinning out in your head worrying about that threat, is you find where it is in the body. What is what is that anxiety in the body? Mm-hmm. And then when you do that, you short circuit that amount of time that you're flooded. Yeah, yeah. So, so very thing to know. Very, uh, very concrete, very practical, very in practical. a way, definition of mindfulness and purpose yeah. of mindfulness is, uh, you know, noticing how we function as, uh, as, a, as a mechanism, as a, you know, our biological uh, tendencies and developing a practice that allows us to uh, override that being flooded. Yeah, so I think the, the, the so, and the, there is obviously the practice of mindfulness, which is very important as you can strengthen this ability to, to be mindful. But I, I think the other point that's really important for people to appreciate is that mindfulness is simply a shift of awareness. It can happen in a moment. You can do it anywhere. You can do it on a bus bench. You can do it riding in a car going driving to work in the car you can do it anywhere it's simply a shift of awareness that allows you to have a the ability to reflect on your experience rather than to be caught in it yeah yeah so very beautiful a shift in awareness that's about the ability to reflect on your experience as opposed to being caught in it yes or the other way i would say that is to have a relationship with your experience that's that uh, allows you to keep company with yourself. Yeah, so have a relationship yeah. with your experience. Keep so company with yourself. About, yeah, so when we talk about uh, being flooded, and instead of going with the, mo- the sort of top, the thoughts, that, the ruminating thoughts and worrying and anxiety, we kind of come back to the body as a way of, Keeping company with ourselves, and I think that's very much what mindfulness is about as a, an awareness. It's an embodied awareness. Yeah. yeah. So, so an embodied awareness. We're not just thoughts. These are not just, uh, you know, abstractions. But it's happening here and now in your body. 
Yes, but it, what's also important, I think, to appreciate is that, that we're not getting rid of thoughts. Uh, many people have this misunderstanding about meditation, that it, and it's even in mindfulness, that it somehow means that you're, you're going to get rid of your thoughts, mm-hmm. which I think is a... <laughs> Uh, when people have that expectation of meditation, they they quickly get discouraged because obviously they're they're thinking, and uh, we're always thinking thoughts. And uh, mm-hmm. meditation is not about not thinking; it's about how to think from the body. So I, I think Eugene would say it. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I I love Eugene's work, especially his uh, latest stuff. Uh, but um, so I think the the point here is to have a relationship to thought. You're not where you can be mindful about thinking itself. Mm-hmm. Instead of being caught in the content of your thought, you could actually have a relationship to how you think, which would then be uh, very useful. Yeah, yeah. So um, caught in the content of your thoughts. Um, in a way, uh, is really essentially be in a reactive mode. You have no control about it. You disappear into the reaction and have a relationship with it. There's something more. There's a room for actually this kind of a larger container where, you know, you have that reaction, you have that experience, and you have room for relationship with it. That's right. And the really interesting thing to me about that is that when you are in that place that's reactive, you really cannot keep company with yourself in this way that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that keeping company with oneself or attuning to oneself or however you want to put it is extremely, is the most loving thing we can do. And um, uh, we just don't do it enough. It's mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a busyness in the culture, and a, we're manic, we're driven, we're um, we're fragmented, we're multitasking, and I find that a lot of people have a real fear about being still or being uh, just slowing down. So I think we're almost you can almost say we're addicted to to the speed of the, the technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes a, a real distraction from keeping company with ourselves in this way. Yeah. So what I'm noticing is um, you describe this as um, um, paying attention to ourselves, that's slowing down, so that instead of, in a way, reaching some kind of a special state or you know having an, to achieve something, you're describing something that's a gateway to having a little increased curiosity about... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I think uh, um, we are really caught in abstractions about who we think we are. And uh, I think where Zen practice takes you or mindfulness practice takes you in the direction of is beginning to appreciate yourself as a verb, mm-hmm. that life is a constant process of unfolding and, and something is always emerging in the moment. And the, I think it's the nature of mindfulness to put us in touch with that, the intimacy of that unfolding. 
moment by moment, and, and that's what begins to uh, open our curiosity about the, the the wonder and the mystery of it of this moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, just in a way, um, that sense of curiosity about what's happening right now in your body. Yes. Um, you know, again, if we just come back to this notion of abstractions, the, the, we tend to settle for uh, generalities and, um, like, um, if I'm, have, again, to just ground this in, in things that are practical, if I'm feeling depressed, mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning and I have a hard time getting out of bed and I'm thinking about going to work and I... And the thought occurs to me, I'm depressed today. I've, actually, I've been depressed for the last two weeks. But if that's my thought, and uh, then I've settled for an abstraction, that is kind of monolithic uh, state of being depressed, which, mm-hmm. which has no curiosity and no differentiation. But if I, if I know how to approach that, uh, this experience that I'm labeling as depression and begin to get curious about what are the parts of it. Well, that now I'm starting to differentiate it, and it's not quite as solid as it was before. Now I can actually start to notice that, well, in what I'm calling depression, I have some sadness, but I also have the, a feeling tone of anger is taking place. And... Um, and I'm feeling, uh, you know, there could be a whole range of uh, textures of emotion if I, if I was willing to approach this from a more um, mindful place. And and I think that could actually free me from that the the weight of what I think of as depression. Yeah, yeah. So when you describe it this way, what it evokes for me is say. Uh, to take a metaphor, um, something like uh, what would be in a mystery, um, uh, something that the police characterizes as case closed, and then the investigator comes back and pays attention to uh, you know a few clues and reopens, and then suddenly there is a possibility of discovery of something new. Yes, yes. So, yes. So the the detective has the ability to sort of a lot of the these kind of mystery stories, we can appreciate that the detective has the ability to sort of think outside the box. Yes. Yeah, which again, I think is a mindful quality. Uh, you, uh, one of the writers I really enjoy uh, is Ellen Langer, who's written really wonderfully about uh, mindfulness and coined the term mindful learning. Mm-hmm. And she studied uh, children in classrooms and discovered that uh, one of the and she used this term mindful learning to to describe this experience of learning where instead of presenting information in a very uh, certain, in an absolute way, as an absolute fact, you present it in, in a way that's ambiguous so that now uh, it's not clear what the actual information is presented in a way where it's not certain that it's just one, it could be just one thing. Now the mind is engaged in that information. Mm. And what she found from doing very, fairly, seems to me, rigorous clinical uh, studies in classrooms that she set up was that also 
um, there is this aspect of when we're mindful, we're able to uh, create new categories uh, that didn't exist before. We could we could actually, instead of settling for one assumption that we quickly create closure around uh, or an interpretation, we remain open to the kind of ambiguity and uncertainty of the moment as it's unfolding, and that allows us to actually uh, be very creative and curious about the whole thing and imagine other scenarios that we hadn't even thought about. Beautiful. That's the nature of mindfulness. Is it's always a, it has to do with novelty because it's, it's about getting out of the ruts where we get stuck. Yeah, and I really especially like your explanation now uh, in light of the example you gave about uh, waking up in the morning, feeling depressed, and, uh, you know, now we can in a way come back to that example and see how uh, in one case you find quick closure by putting this into a box and saying, oh, this is depressed, and yeah. depressed leads to, of course, now I know what it is and I know there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. And then, you know, it's closed, uh, as opposed to... death sentence, huh? I mean, that's, yeah. like the, that's the negative bias, you know? That's just for, like, taking that negative bias and, and, and just uh, multiplying it by ten and then making it into an abstraction that is so solid that there, there, you could have no curiosity about it at all. Yeah. And, and I think what's also interesting is the way you're describing it, the way you're, you're discussing it, it's not an all or nothing. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there is this amazing power of the brain to solve absolutely everything by f having the right focus and the, quote, mindful attitude about it, but simply the openness to actually going a little further uh, and there's no guarantee that suddenly, magically, everything will fall into place, but simply you know, not getting stuck at that uh, immediate putting things into category. Yes, we tend to, we, we get a lot of bad role modeling in the culture. There's a lot of, we see it in politicians and public figures all the time, demonstrating their certitude about whatever it is they're talking about. And that's supposed to be, we imagine that has something to do with strength when someone has a, strong opinion and they don't waver and they don't admit any mistakes and but I actually think that's a kind of unmindful way of approaching life that it's much more likely that we're mindful when we're in a place of uncertainty and there may be more clarity in our uncertainty than in our um, need for you know certitude yeah so so maybe uh a point there that having that attitude of uncertainty does not mean staying in limbo and doing nothing, and you're a great example of it. I mean, you haven't just stayed in uncertainty. You have created things in your life and taught. So just maybe to, to, to make this point. Yes, I think the, that's a really important point, Serge, that um, when you are open and flexible in this way and curious and, and this... Uh, Open awareness is uh, it's a kind of letting go into it. Uh, it's, it's not a conceptual. It doesn't rely on some conceptual framework. We either we can open or not, and um, we can sort of contract or we can open. And when we open, then we 
are moving in the direction of being more proactive in our life and more effective because we actually have more leverage and we can see things more clearly. We can see other people and appreciate them in in a richer way that allows us to be more skillful in how we communicate and and deal with any situation because um, mindfulness is always about context. Like, you know, we're really not rehearsing our life. We're living it right now. And uh, if the self is empty, then we're constantly improvising many selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that feels... That, uh, living is an inspired life is really learning to trust uh, that we could be on the spot and open-hearted and, and not have to calculate every move that we make. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the kind of self-consciousness uh, that comes with uh, being trapped in the self in a way that may not be very helpful. So, so being trapped in a in a stereotyped in a in a in an ossified uh, uh, self, as opposed to being ready to discover many selves that come in interaction with circumstances of the moment. Yes, and and the. And Dan Siegel talks about this beautifully, and, and others do as well, that we really are social beings. And uh, I've always been amazed in focusing how it seems easier to focus in a partnership than it is by myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm always amazed by the, how relational focusing is, and yet it's an activity of, of going, uh, an internal knowing that you do by going and finding the no sense in your own uh, body, but actually it seems to um, be more accessible by through partnering with somebody else. Yes, and that's where we go with the relational brain and how... Uh, Absolutely. Yes, yes. They are so relational. And um, so I think that's a big part of uh, opening is that we begin to have access to our relational self in a way that uh, makes our interpersonal life richer and we have a, a better quality of relationship with other people. We're able to be more intimate and uh, more present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very different from, in a way, that sense that meditation uh, is something that fosters a sense of being um, uh, self-involved. Yes, or the idea that Zen is to have some special experience Mm -hmm. once and for all, you know, I'm going to get it. Or even, you know, samadhi is a a wonderful, various states of absorption can be uh, had through meditation, but it's not the end of Zen practice uh, by any means, And, and people easily get stuck in some... Uh, uh, even an experience of of, um, an absorption or some wonderful, blissful experience that they then think this is it. (laughs) Right, right. And and this is not it. It is actually too (laughs) more... Yes, but uh, it's always changing, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I say this is it and try to stop it, then, then it's sort of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. 
So anyway, I back to this notion of of um, being proactive. Mm-hmm. I I was reading your website and was I think you don't say this, but I was wondering how because I think in the culture there's a lot of emphasis on the power of positive thinking, and I've always had a bit of trouble with that. Well, I do too. I mean, I have an article someplace that says the the positive power of, ne- of negative thinking or something of that nature. Yeah. But, I mean, I do, I, I have a tremendous um, uh, distaste for uh, standardized positive thinking and trying to force the positive view on things. Yes, yes. It seems very, um, um, what's the word, uh, repressive almost. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a totalitarian, enforced jollity. Exactly. You're like so. going to impose <laughs> on yourself a positive experience when when you might be uh, having a negative one, which just goes back to what we said about the positive, about being reactive. If you're in a reactive mode, the, the way you practice with it is acknowledging that that's where you're at right now instead of trying to... Uh, Say, oh, I shouldn't be here, or I yeah. shouldn't having, I shouldn't be reactive because I'm a Zen student and I practice mindfulness. So we're not supposed to be reactive. That's not the <laughs> right. But but and, and and even that, you know, in a way, to not put reactive in the place of the bad guy, because yeah. as you pointed out, you know, it has tremendous, tremendous, tremendous value. Yeah. It's uh, it's not that it's bad. It's just that actually proactive is just. Incorporating the reactive and, uh, you know, just to, in a way adding an extra loop. I think it, it applies to any emotion or any experience that we think of as negative. It can be transmuted or transformed into wisdom by how we work with it. So mm-hmm. I think anger is probably maybe the most destructive emotion that we human beings can experience and it can cause an enormous amount of pain and suffering when we act it out but at the same time there's a, an intelligence in our anger when when anger arises it might be just something in a situation that we're involved with is out of balance yeah yeah there's some boundary violation and that anger is a valid reaction to that but then it's how do we how do we reflect on that reactive anger that's coming up in us that makes a difference between how it gets transformed either into a wisdom or it becomes a poison. Yeah, and, and, and I want to underline how in a way just what you just said uh, is an example of what you said earlier about um, uh, that sense of mindfulness being a relationship with oneself of uh, yeah. observing, so in, in that case, observing that uh, difficult emotion of anger, and through that observation, making room for it, having that relationship with the emotion in oneself, the possibility of transforming it. So again, that sense of relation, observation, and process, and transformation. Yes, they have a, some of the mindfulness teachers have a wonderful an acronym that I like. They call it RAIN. I think uh, Tara Brock talks about this. And I, uh, it, RAIN stands for four steps. So the R is recognize the experience. So if you were, if you were to use this in the context of anger, you first have to, a lot of people are in denial of anger. Mm-hmm. So people can become very, uh, you know, passive aggressive and, 
you never know where they're coming from, and they don't either. But it, so if you recognize, uh, it's important to first uh, recognize what is actually taking place. So I think again, we're focusing is very useful is to go in and find what is actually happening and be able to uh, open to that. And then um, uh, what's the, the A stands for, um, uh, I believe A stands for acknowledging it. So instead of, instead of pushing it away, there's a further opening to it and uh, uh, sort of owning it. Mm -hmm. as your own experience, and then the I stands for investigate, which I think would have something to do with that kind of curiosity you were talking about earlier, is that you begin to actually get curious about the texture of it. It's not monolithic at all. The anger is not monolithic. There's usually sadness underneath it or fear or various other um, emotional tones. And then... Um, the N stands for not identifying. So again, that I think that's what helps us begin to have a relationship with that experience, which could be very negative, but ends up being uh, quite rich when we know how to to hold it in a way that doesn't solidify it. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so recognize these, these uh, various steps um, in uh, you know the relationship with what happens. Yeah, I think mindfulness is great because it's so concrete and specific. So you can really break things down this way to uh, make it makes more sense than to try to just generalize about our experience. Yeah. So maybe. Um, it seems like a possible way to conclude this conversation would be to encourage people to think in terms of uh, curiosity, discovery, experimentation. Oh, yes, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just uh, uh, just being open. Uh, open. We can. Uh, the nature of our minds is open as it is, and when we touch the the root of that in ourselves, then I think we're naturally curious. Yeah, yeah, so in a way, not even to to force curiosity, but to uh, to be open to that curiosity that we naturally have. Yes, I think it actually arises in an organic way when we're, when we're being open in this, when we're just trusting, really trusting who we really are. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe in a way, it's... Uh, being aware that when we're not curious, it's a symptom, it's a, it's a signal that something is disrupting our natural flow. Absolutely. I think it's very, uh, very, uh, very useful exercise to notice where we are, where, Stan where, uh, Siegel would say, where we get, where we get rigid or mm -hmm. where we get, uh, where we get chaotic, either place where we're not is a place where we're not integrated. So you can, it's a useful question to ask. Ask of yourself where, you know, what areas of my life are chaotic or what areas of my life are rigid. And, and, and most likely you find that 
in both of those areas, you are not particularly curious. So what would happen if you were to bring curiosity to either one of those areas in your life? Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com. The nature of our minds is open as it is, and when we touch the the root of that in ourselves, then I think we're naturally curious. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, not even to to force curiosity, but to uh, to be open to that curiosity that we naturally have. Yes, I think it actually arises in an organic way when we're when we're being open in this when we're just trusting, really trusting who we really are. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe in a way, it's. Uh, being aware that when we're not curious, it's a symptom, it's a, it's a signal that something is disrupting our natural flow. Absolutely. I think it's very, uh, very, uh, very useful exercise to notice where we are, where, where, uh, Stan Siegel would say, where we get, where we get rigid, or mm-hmm. where we get, uh, where we get chaotic, either a place where we're not, integ- is a place where we're not integrated. So you can, it's a useful question to ask. Ask of yourself where, you know, what areas of my life are chaotic or what areas of my life are rigid? And, and most likely you find that in both of those areas you are not particularly curious. So what would happen if you were to bring curiosity to either one of those areas in your life? Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com.